sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Happy New Year from the What's Health Got to Do With It team. Coming up, our special 2022 year in review roundtable, plus a look ahead to the new year. As I reflect on 2022, boy, it's been a turbulent year in health. We started the year talking only about one respiratory virus, and now we enter 2023 worrying about three viruses. Infectious diseases, particularly COVID, dominated our headlines, just like they did in 2020 and 2021. Yet on September 18th, 2022, President Biden declared the unofficial end of the COVID pandemic in an interview with 60 Minutes. From that point onward, everyone started moving on from the COVID restrictions, even as cases are once again on the rise and we're learning to live with the pandemic. However, our world has changed because of the pandemic. Not surprisingly, mental health concerns came into clear focus and have continued to grow with heightened cases of anxiety and depression cases in everyone from children to older adults. A National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 988, went live in July 2022 to try to help address the issue. And earlier in the year, on June 24th to be exact, the Supreme Court effectively ended our focus on COVID and catapulted maternal and women's health in general to the forefront with its Dobbs versus Jackson ruling. These are just some of the healthcare topics that impacted us all in 2022. Joining us today is Dr. Swapna Reddy, a professor of health policy and health disparities at Arizona State University's College of Health Solutions in Phoenix, Arizona. Thanks so much for having me. It's so good to have you. We also have Dr. Joseph Draskowski. He is a professor of neurology and a practicing neurologist at Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Draskowski, welcome back. Thank you very much. Always an honor to be here. It is such an honor to have you here as well. And in studio, we have Dr. Jennifer Cowart. She is a practicing hospital internal medicine physician here in Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Cowart, so good to have you in studio. It's great to be here in studio with you, Joe. It's great to have you. Last but not least, we have Dr. Sharag Patel. He is the Assistant Chief Medical Officer for UF Health Jacksonville here in Jacksonville. Dr. Patel, so good to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you as well. Dr. Patel, I'm going to start with you since uh, you have our infectious disease background Here's the question I've asked almost every month on, on literally, I think it's been question one every month of this year. Is the COVID pandemic over as we speak? I'm going to keep it simple. No. Okay. It is okay. Not. <laughs> uh, you know, we still have case rates and ongoing hospitalization and death. Uh, I think we were close to ending it this past summer, uh, but this fall and winter, we took a step back, certainly. Uh, due to the fewer preventative measures that are being taken, 
and that includes fewer people testing, whether it's at home or in a lab, uh, fewer people getting vaccinated, and then, of course, all the extra gatherings we've had with the holidays uh, in poorly ventilated and crowded spaces really contributing to that spread. Um, some people have said, is there a chance that we can actually end it? Uh, and I'll say, well, sure, we've got historic precedent. We've had polio, rubella, diphtheria. Those pandemics have ended really by taking the steps that we've been trying to preach for since the beginning of this pandemic, uh, which include uh, rapidly deploying an effective vaccine to the predominant strain when it's available, maximizing vaccine uptake, and then really taking all those steps that we've talked about to, to reduce the spread of viral illness. And, and the one concern I really have is you know, in this age of disinformation, I'm not really optimistic we're going to be able to achieve the latter. So we may be talking about something that's more endemic. Now, I started in the introduction mentioning we are beginning this year with tridemic uh, or whatever new phrase they use to describe it. Uh, what is happening, Dr. Patel, with flu and RSV as we greet this new year? Yeah. So let's just talk about it in terms of numbers. So the Florida Department of Health does a, a pretty decent job of, of releasing uh, percent positivity for testing. Uh, the week ending December 12th in Northeast Florida, we saw that flu positivity was between 15 and 20% of those being tested. Uh, and fortunately, RSV was on the downtrend down to 8% of those being tested. I think what's really important to remember is when overall testing is down, you're not going to be capturing how accurate that rate of positivity is around the community. Uh, and so it is important for everybody to remember it is still there. It is still being spread and we are still at risk. And so take those precautions you need to, to keep yourself safe. Got it. Dr. Cowart, as we celebrate New Year's Eve, we've got another party uh, that many of us will be there, or maybe we're all going to be home uh, watching the ball drop with our families, whatever way you celebrate it. What is your best advice to help keep us safe and healthy on this holiday? That's a really great question. I think it's the season for respiratory viruses generally, regardless of whether we're talking about COVID or we're talking about this, you know, tridemic. Uh, RSV is out there. Flu is out there. None of these are particularly fun. None of us want to get sick and, and miss out on fun times with our family. Um, and of course, many members of our community are very vulnerable to these infections, particularly the very young newborns, uh, folks with medical issues. So I would say it, it, we should not let the pendulum swing all the way the other direction. It's not all or nothing. It's not locked down or everything goes. We should be mindful of those people around us who are at risk. So if there's a newborn baby in your family, this might be the year where that newborn needs to be, you know, more isolated from a bunch of visitors because RSV infection in a newborn can be really, really serious. That newborn may need to be hospitalized. And unfortunately, we're experiencing across the country a real uptick in hospitalizations in children and thus is, this is creating a shortage in the ability for those kids to actually get into hospital beds because everything's so full. So be mindful of those things. If someone around you is sick and there's a member of your family who's vulnerable, let's maybe not have that gathering uh, and try to keep folks safe. Same thing for just your basic, um, you know, other viral illnesses. It's a, a an unfortunately great time of year for stomach viruses. So, you know, hand washing and staying home when you're sick. These common sense things that we we used to do even prior to the pandemic, they're still important. And we still need to be conscious of folks who are ill in our family and folks who around us may be ill and trying to keep everyone at our gatherings safe. So I would say being mindful of who's going to be at your gathering and what their risk factors are. And then, of course, COVID still out there, flu out there. So if you're having respiratory symptoms and you're concerned about going to a gathering, get a test test yourself or see your doctor and get a test. If you have COVID, if you have flu and you're actively symptomatic and in that isolation period, don't travel. Don't go see that family. You never know who you might infect um, and get sick. Then if you're if you're doing feeling well and your testing is negative and everyone around you is is doing well, then I hope that you just wash your hands and have a good time. I love it. And all perfect advice that that we all need to follow. Uh, Dr. Patel, uh, one other question on, on these uh, bugs. Uh, there are vaccines available uh, for COVID. There are vaccines available for flu. Are people getting these vaccines? Yeah, I'll add to what you just said. And they're free of cost. <laughs> yes, very important. Uh, so some people still are, but the rate is very, very low. And I think that there's two. Some people are and the rate is very, very low. 
I think that there are two major contributing factors to why we've run into this sort of uh, downtick in, in folks wanting to get vaccinated. So first, it's this rapid evolution of these subvariants, uh, and and people are saying, well, gosh, I'm going to get something and it's not going to be effective. So why put something in my body? Uh, the second thing is with with Omicron, it was a double edged sword. We had fewer people getting really really sick compared mm-hmm. to Delta, and I think some some took that as a sign of, hey, this is my chance. I'll just take my chances. Uh, I won't get as sick if I do get Omicron. And that's really hurt our ability to vaccinate more and more folks in the general public. One of the reasons we may be having poor vaccine uptake, specifically here in Florida, has to do with just the environment about vaccines. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis asked the Florida Supreme Court to impanel a grand jury. Let me underline that. Grand jury, not a science type of investigation to investigate wrongdoing linked to the COVID-19 vaccines, including spreading false and misleading claims about the efficacy of the doses. Dr. Reddy, I know you're in Arizona. You must be wondering what's going on in Florida, but what do you think is going on here? Uh, from uh, When you read that, what what is your mindset? Yeah. It's very interesting. I mean, I, you know, even though I don't live in Florida anymore, I once did live in Florida. So I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with, especially the South Florida area. So what we know last week, right, is Governor DeSantis said that he's going to petition the state Supreme Court to convene a grand jury to investigate, quote unquote, any and all wrongdoing uh, with respect to COVID-19 vaccines. What's interesting here is he didn't really say what wrongdoing the panel would investigate, um, but suggested that it would in part be aimed at jogging loose more information from pharmaceutical companies about the vaccines and potential side effects. And um, and he said he did this following a roundtable with uh, the Florida Surgeon General and a panel of scientists and physicians. Should be noted that many of those panelists are, um, uh, you know, have made sort of anti-vaccine uh, and anti-lockdown comments in the past. And so here, here's where we are. Um, to, you made a really excellent point. He's not asking for sort of a science, you know, a, a scientific investigation um, at, at the state level. He's asking for a grand jury. It's a very unusual request. Um, at its at its core, this feels just like a hyper a hyper politicized. Um, extension of the hyper-politicized nature um, of how COVID was handled, not only in, in Florida, but in also in states like Arizona and many states around the country. I think it's an, an, an unfortunate use of state resources um, and funding. And also, you know, in, in some way, this request equivocates um, what the pharmaceutical companies were doing during the, during the the pandemic and in the development of the COVID-19 vaccine with sort of the opioid crisis. And, and we know we don't have any scientific evidence to support that. So again, I think that what it's doing is just further muddies the water in terms of public trust around the vaccines. Um, and, and obviously we're in a state in a, a situation where we need folks to go get vaccinated. Um, and again, once again, you know, just over politicizes uh, what is essentially a public health issue. And it's, it's unfortunate. Dr. Patel, you want to uh, chime in? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll say, let's just hope the spirit of this is so that we can increase transparency, increase information for those folks who are taking care of patients, uh, whether it's your PCP or, or doctors taking care of patients in the hospital. We all practice medicine based on the evidence. And the more evidence that's available for us to review helps us make the right decisions for our patients and their families. And so at the end of the day, um, whether the methods are something that you agree with or not, I think the, the, the underlying message for me is if we can maximize our access to data, then let's go ahead and do that so that we can figure out if it's right for our patients or not. Not to say anything to the means at which this is occurring, right. uh, just simply to say that, that care providers need evidence to provide the best care for their patients. Dr. Draskowski, the governor of Florida pointed out that the risk of myocarditis with certain vaccines... Um, is there a case there, uh, in terms of potential side effects that, that have been downplayed, if you will, or is this just a prelude into some, into something else? 
Well, I'm not sure that it's downplayed necessarily, but what I would say is that any any new drug is I've been around a long time, and and any new drug that comes to market has potential side effects that are unknown in the beginning, and as time goes on, these are discovered, and we we take appropriate steps to counsel our patients about util, utilizing these medicines, and I think again, people have talked about transparency and having an open. Uh, open door policy to all the data is so important to help the public, our practitioners, and other healthcare professionals make those decisions. Dr. Cowart, how could this further impact already low vaccine rates, not just in Florida, but in Arizona and in many other places? And not just for COVID, I'm talking polio, measles. Uh, the, the numbers are pretty bad. Well, that's actually something I did want to talk about because I think it's one thing to increase transparency, be sure we're studying you know, any medication, post-market surveillance, getting data out there, all good things, right? We want science to continue. There are definitely medicines that come off the market uh, after release because we identify more side effects when more people get them. On the other hand, um, some of the tactics used uh, recently on in regards to the COVID vaccine have undermined public trust in other vaccines as well in addition to the COVID vaccine. And this we are already seeing in the state of Florida and particularly Duval County, where we are right now, decreases in our vaccine uptakes uh, for children. And again, not just the COVID vaccine, all vaccines that they're supposed to be getting for school to prevent vaccine uh, illness, vaccine preventable illness like measles and uh, mumps and rubella, the things that none of us want our kids to get uh, because these can be fatal and have long you know, long lifelong effects. And so we're seeing a decline in these uh, vaccine preventable illnesses uh, when these kids actually taking these shots. So once you get below a certain rate of vaccines in a community, you get pockets where um, the vaccine rate drops just enough, you can start to see outbreaks of illness. And we've seen this across the country. And now Duval County may become one of those areas where we start to see pockets and clusters of outbreaks of measles. Um, and so I would really want to see that data transparency used in a way that is furthering the public trust in how we are transparent and studying vaccines as well as all medications and allowing people to make risk-benefit decisions. Um, and I just want to say I'm a mother of two children, 10 and 6, who have received all of their uh, required vaccines uh, and get their flu shot annually because uh, the one year we missed it, we all got the flu and it was terrible. And uh, and I've also had their COVID boosters uh, because I believe that the science is sound and I believe that they were safe to take it. So um, and I read the studies and I was careful and I believe that that risk benefit calculation was favorable. To our listeners out there, you are listening to what's health got to do with it on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan. And if you're just joining us, it's our special 2022 year in health review. And we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. Dr. Reddy, uh, one of the positive parts of the COVID pandemic, and yes, there has been at least a couple of them that are out there, has to do with changes in health policy, a relaxation of laws that have allowed a lot of things to occur from access to Medicaid enrollment, extension of telehealth, and many others. My question to you is, what happens when these public health emergency waivers expire, given that so many people have benefited, whether it is Medicaid uh, or dramatic growth in telehealth or even free vaccines? I mean, what happens now when that occurs? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I mean, one thing that we know really at the height of the pandemic is the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services really took a range of administrative steps to expedite the adoption and awareness of, as you just mentioned, something, you know, very important like telehealth during the COVID-19 pandemic, right? And so the, the reality of the, the telehealth changes were that they really increased access um, for folks that were not comfortable, able, 
Um, maybe it wasn't safe to come into a hospital setting. Maybe, you know, things were closed, but also expanded access to really critical services that we saw only the growth and the need for such as behavioral health, mental health services, right? And lots of primary care services. I, I myself and many members of our family were really, you know, recipients of lots of primary care telehealth um, services right. during the pandemic. Um, but many of those telehealth flexibilities ended up being temporary and they're going to lapse, as you mentioned, at the end of what's considered the COVID-19 public health emergency. Uh, what we do know is around mid-October, um, the Department of Health and Human Services announced an extension uh, of, of some of those um, uh, uh, relaxations of the COVID-19 public health emergency for an additional 90 days. So that latest extension um, will end now on January 11th. So what we do know is that some of those changes ended up becoming permanent. So I'll give you an example. Like Medicare patients can receive telehealth services, um, including audio-only services, for mental and behavioral health care in their homes in any part of the country if certain conditions are met. So that's that's a great thing, right? But certain pieces um, are definitely going to be phasing out. Um, so, you know, things like increased flexibility regarding where patients that receive Medicare telehealth services as well as where the services originate will kind of revert back to match the restrictions that were in place prior to the public health emergency. So we have sort of a mixed bag. I think we've seen a lot of um, improvement from that mental health perspective, but we're going to be reverting back, I think, on and many of sort of the primary care access pieces, which is which is unfortunate. Um, and and I think what we also saw during the pandemic is how how much something as simple as telehealth actually does expand access. You know, also parity related to reimbursement. Um, we saw lots of changes during the pandemic, and and I think you know we're seeing a lot of those revert back as well. And so um, I think, you know, it's really important to keep a close eye on what changes actually made a difference from an access perspective. And when we think about access, it's important to think about folks that are in rural areas, but also um, very low income communities and communities of color that generally have issues uh, with accessing things like primary care, mental health services, et cetera, in, in, in general. And, and so I think as we move forward, this is an important moment um, to take a look at kind of what worked and, and why we, we don't have those things actually readily available in our regular right. healthcare delivery system, you know, outside of a public health emergency um, and, you know, really look towards opportunities to, to continue to make those relaxations. And, and Dr. Reddy, just a quick follow-up on that. We don't have a, a, an exact date as to when this will end. Well, I mean, we know that um, that by January 11th, everything that has not been um, uh, codified as permanent past the public health emergency, those those extensions will be ending. Let me switch to uh, the other headlining health issue, uh, and that was the Dobbs versus Jackson decision. One of the biggest changes, not just this year, but maybe even in our lifetimes, was the Dobbs versus Jackson decision, which effectively changed OBGYN and the practice of women's health overnight. Dr. Coward, I'll ask you this. Where does the abortion fight go next? Oh, what a question. I think we're really going to see state to state variability even accelerate into 2023. We're going to have some states continue to accelerate their affirmation of, of a pregnant person's uh, ability to self-determine, uh, access medical care, some states even going so far as to help fund uh, abortion services for folks who may be traveling from out of state, some moves to protect the right to receive abortion pills, even by telemedicine or across state lines. And then we're going to see other states that move further in the opposite direction and further criminalize the procedure. Uh, Texas, of course, one of the uh, most heavily criminalized with this um, six-week ban and the uh, ability to have the bounty, quote-unquote, from you know your neighbor thinks you had an abortion and they can turn you in for an investigation and the neighbor can get a bounty. Um, there is some speculation that here in Florida in the 2023 legislative session, we're going to be looking at either a heartbeat or six-week abortion ban, uh, something much more restrictive than our current state law, which is 15 weeks. And at 15 weeks uh, access, we are already in Florida, one of the only states in the nearby region where abortion is actually available at all. Uh, and so we are continuing to be a receiving state uh, for folks seeking abortion services here in Florida. So if Florida 
criminalizes the procedure much, much earlier than currently. Um, folks in the entire Southeast may be forced to travel much, much further to receive services. So I would expect much more state-to-state variability with some states going much further to protect a right to access and right. some states going much further to criminalize abortion access. Boy, what a, what a difference is it going to make in 2023. Dr. Driskowski, you are a well-known educator. So uh, with that lens, I ask you this question. What happens to the practice of OBGYN in terms of education? And well, I mean, that sounds to me like a specialty that's about to undergo fundamental transformation just based on this. Wow, that that is an that is an excellent question. The edu- education goes up and down. You know, people go, want to go into different specialties, and it's trendy sometimes. And I think this could this could potentially put a big chill on it. I don't think most medical students, unless they're unless they want to advocate for this, most medical students probably would not want to have to deal with this controversy. I know I, I know that. If I were going through it, I, I wouldn't want to deal with the controversy and have to deal with, you know, uh, doing medical legal work all the time. I, I certainly, I certainly think it's it's a concern. I really do. Is is do you think? I mean, it sounds like people can't even teach the procedure. Well, I mean, I, I grew up in I grew up when I was going to medical school. There, there was hospitals that would do abortions and hospitals that wouldn't do abortions, and, and it was it was a challenge keeping up with all that as a medical student. So, I mean, some of the, this has changed to a gargantuan level at this point in time. So, yeah, I guess this is what we're just going to have to stay tuned, Doctor Reddy. Um, how will Dobbs versus Jackson continue to impact women's health in 2023 and beyond, in your opinion? Yeah, so um, as we just heard, you know, what we're seeing is we have 50 different states in this in this country and we'll have 50 different um, abortion policies in this country. Right. And and I think something that's really important to note is, I mean, I, I personally was born shortly after uh, Roe v. Wade decision um, came down. And so I've, I've never lived in, in the United States where um, this wasn't really a, a fundamental right. Not only myself, though, I mean, I teach students that are millennials and, and Gen Z. Um, you know, they have not lived in the United States. The, 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 the women that I teach have not lived in the United States, but this was not a fundamental right. And I have a teenage daughter, right? So we're really talking about a half century and up to three generations of women and young girls in this country um, who have kind of taken for granted that they will always have the ability to um, make decisions about their own body. And so I think what we're, we're awakening to is a country that's, that's looking very different and women's health and women's health rights that are looking very different. We have, you know, 13 states um, where most abortions are, are almost banned currently right now. And that's not looking to change at all because um, as a result of the Dobbs uh, decision, you know, states will be able to make, their own decisions um, as to reproductive rights in their state. And so I think you'll see exactly what was mentioned. Um, We'll have states that will kind of continue to double down on uh, restrictive uh, reproductive rights laws in their their state. And then we'll have sort of other states that will probably expand their reproductive rights and, and continue to expand and become these sort of receiving states. I currently live in in Arizona and in Arizona, you know, uh, when the Dobbs case came down, we had two conflicting state laws. We had one that was on the books from pre-statehood times, which was uh, from the 1800s. It basically said pretty much all abortions were illegal and physicians that performed them could, could go to jail. That was still on the books. Then we also had uh, a law that was passed last year through our legislature basically outlawing any abortions past um, 15 weeks. And and those two laws conflict with each other and and are currently being sort of figured out in in the states. And so what's really important here is who is being impacted and and it's who's impacted by all of the issues that we're talking about. You know, disproportionately, we're talking about uh, low-income women and families, talking about rural women, and you know we're always also talking about women of color being disproportionately impacted. Um, because you know we, I live next to a state called California where the reproductive rights laws look very different. Um, so I think it's really important to note: yes, we're 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 entering a very divided country on this issue. Um, but we, well, we have certain women in certain communities that are certainly disproportionately impacted by every single one of the issues that we've talked about today and have less and less sort of agency and ability to kind of overcome those challenges. And it's important to remember them when we're, when we're discussing these issues. 
And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan. If you're just joining us, it's our special 2022 Year in Health Review. And we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservan. Let me switch the topic a little bit and let's go to another very difficult topic, and that is maternal mortality. In November, the March of Dimes gave the U.S. a D plus, a D as in dog, uh, right next to failing, uh, on maternal and infant health in the United States. The rates of maternal mortality, particularly among women of color, are at historic high levels. Dr. Cowart, we've been talking about this pre-pandemic. This was actually a campaign issue even before anything happened. How can we solve this problem? What a great question. And it's such a multifaceted problem. Uh, we are we know that we are seeing dis- disparities in healthcare before becoming pregnant. Um, we know which means that folks who didn't have access to health care may not be as healthy when they become pregnant. Um, then during the pregnancy, if they're not able to access care, uh, that they may not have as healthy a pregnancy. And then maternal mortality is also measured, I believe, up until one year postpartum. Uh, that whole time period is actually measured. But many of our state's uh, Medicaid policies uh, actually cut women off even as early as six weeks after giving birth. And not many states go all the way to one year, although there is some change in that regard. They're moving to longer and longer times. And it's because we know that women in that year after giving birth are still experiencing sometimes side effects from the pregnancy. So preeclampsia can lead to hypertension. Uh, Gestational diabetes can lead to ongoing diabetes. Mental health issues become a problem postpartum with postpartum depression. We also see substance abuse and other challenges in the community affecting women during and after their pregnancies. Medical care and medical access are really important to helping all of these policies. We also need data and transparency, which I think has been a a theme of the day. So we really need to be studying what is happening to these women uh, across the country in, you know, both resourced and under-resourced areas, urban, rural, um, there's racial disparities. We need to be examining what's happening to women of color. And then we need to be putting resources into the areas that we identify, both in the pregnancy as well as after the pregnancy. You know, we're a country that doesn't have um, you know, paid maternity leave uh, or easy access to quality child care. You know, things like that, that other countries have started to tackle these issues. So I think we're beginning to work on these things with data. I know HHS has been uh, really putting a lot of time and resources into into studying this problem. I have hope, but it is a long-term problem that will take a lot of time and resources to try to solve, but it's crucial. We need to to be a pro-family country. We need to save people's lives and help them have happy, productive lives with their families. And this is really important. Such an important message for 2023 as we look forward to it. Dr. Patel, are you optimistic that this is going to even be addressed in 2023 or onward? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're looking at an evolution in how we're practicing. Byproduct of healthcare worker shortages nationally has really forced us to be creative with what is the next generation of how we deliver care. A part of that, obviously, is telehealth. Part of that is expansion of scope of practice for different disciplines within medicine, right? It's not just about physicians anymore. It also includes nurse practitioners, physicians' assistants, uh, even with the drug Paxlovid. uh, States authorized pharmacists to dispense Paxlovid directly from the pharmacies without a physician's prescription. Uh, These are all things that people are trained for. They're within their scope of practice, and we've always been reluctant to expand it. And and I think when it comes to uh, maternal health, we have opportunities to uh, reach out to those who are underserved uh, with some of these creative uh, evolutionary measures. Such a good point. You know, one of the other topics that uh, did come up a bit in 2023 uh, has to do with our friends at the FDA. Uh, uh, We'll put under the category that uh, breakthroughs that may have fallen through uh, in this direction. So early in the year, the FDA found itself in some hot water on its handling of drug approvals for two neurological conditions, Alzheimer's and ALS. 
In the case of Alzheimer's, the FDA approved a drug, Agihelm, that did not have positive results in its clinical trial, but it went to CMS, which is the group that controls Medicare, and they chose not to cover the drug. In ALS, another drug was approved, but again with FDA criticism. Dr. Draskowski, can the FDA win uh, at all in any of its approaches here? Uh, I, 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 these are two horrific diseases. There are no treatments. Uh, what, what, what do you see is going on in terms of what happened with the criticism that they got? And they got a lot of it. Well, I think, I think again, just, just to start, you know, these diseases, as you mentioned, Dr. Servant, are horrible diseases. ALS only affects about 20,000 people in this country a year. And it's, it, it's terminal. Same with Alzheimer's, about 6 million, however. Uh, they, there's currently a desperate need for this. So there's a lot of push. There's a lot of emphasis on getting drugs approved for this. And uh, as you mentioned, you know, particularly with the Alzheimer's drug, it, it, it didn't do it. The FDA didn't do itself a favor. You know, they had how these drugs get approved is, you know, you have an expert panel that kind of helps decide whether the drug goes to market or not. And they went against the the FDA expert panel initially. They the panel was the panel was impaneled, and uh, they recommended against approval. And the agency, for whatever reason, for whatever pressure, for whatever ideology, they decided to approve it anyway. Um, when it got into the community, it was super expensive. Uh, the experts in the field that deal with. Alzheimer's disease said, well, this, this drug is not that great, and we're not going to write for it cons over concerns over safety, efficacy, and um, cost. So they took it, they retrenched and took a step back and said, okay, now we're going to approve it only unless it's only if it's part of a trial. So basically, it won out, you know, the process won out in the end, but it was sure traumatic. It, 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 it you know, reduced a lot of confidence in the way this drug was approved. Now, with the ALS, with the ALS drug, that was a little different. Um, it was given a priority application uh, because it really is, you know, 5,000 new cases a year. It really qualified for orphan drug status. And it was qualified based on a law that was passed by Congress for funding. Now, that one, that one did show uh, initially, it didn't, didn't show initial um, uh, efficacy, if you will, and the panel re recommended against it. So after some resubmission of data, uh, then it was approved by the expert panel after they reconsidered it. So again, it kind of worked out in the end, but not not without its own controversy. So uh, the 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 whole process seems to have worked out in the end, but it seems to be rather less than streamlined. So there's often competing interests and those competing interests have to be weighed and measured. And with the desperateness of the patients that are involved in this, I think that, that kind of swayed them into a little bit of an early, early approval, if you will. So, uh, you know, the, 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 the panel should be completely independent and, you know, the approval should be independent and should be based on the scientific merit methods, the scientific merits of the, of the drug. All data should be, you know, transparent, should be open, available, and then we can, we can help in that decision-making process. So it, was it the wrong approach? Was it the right approach? I think in the end, they finally get where it got where they needed to go, but not without controversy. Got it. Oh, so let me ask you this. Do you foresee some positive, breakthrough, if you will, in these conditions or others neurologically uh, over the coming year? Yeah, I, I do. I think, I think I can remember back to a day when we first got our MS drugs and they were touted as only being marginally effective. But as time goes on and new, uh, you know, new studies come on, come online, you know, it remains a challenge, but overall, I think it moves forward. Uh, we will, I'm very optimistic that some of these drugs will be uh, very helpful. I mean, the, for when, when, we're, when we're young physicians, you know, I'm told not to go into neurology because you can't treat anything. Well, ALS was one of those can't treat right. anything. And now, now in my lifetime, it's fantastic. We have a drug that re at least reduces the rate of decline in this very devastating and tragic disease. So uh, I'm very hopeful that these things will come about. Let me ask this question, Dr. Cowart. There have been a lot of focus and attention on the state of medicine, the institution. Uh, doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers are tired. 
People are leaving the field of nursing and medicine. Uh, nurses in Minnesota had a strike. Strikes were averted in nursing in Michigan and in California. The British nurses are currently striking at this time. Uh, what do you see as the state of the U.S. medical workforce, if you will? Do you see it improving in this coming year, given how tired everyone is? Yeah, I have hope uh, in, in the coming times that you know, new folks are graduating, new, new staff are being hired, uh, new nurses are entering the field. Uh, but we, I think, are dealing with decades of underpaying and uh, not treating well our nursing and allied health staff. And, and I mean, we as the, the institution of medicine. And clearly, this is not just an American problem. This is happening in Canada. This is happening overseas. Um, and so I think we're seeing the folks that do the provision of the care at the bedside are the ones that are the ones who are striking and are uh, saying that this is not working for them. It's partly a pay issue, but I think it's it's beyond that. It's culture. It's how they're treated. It's how uh, their workload is. You know, I might have a nurse who's well paid, but if the workload is too high and then the burdens are too high, you know, they might still choose to leave. Charting. Uh, the time that nurses at the bedside spend charting has just risen and risen and risen and risen on a you know exponential curve with no real downtick. Um, we have movements from Congress for policies to reduce the burden of documentation for physicians, but we don't really necessarily see that same uh, drive uh, for documentation for nurses. So I think there's things that we should all be, you know, we're all physicians, I think, on this call, but we should all be aware of for our, our partners in medicine and making sure that they are treated well, that we pay attention to their workload and make sure that we advocate for improvements to their work-life balance as well as our own. Um, I would love to see nurses be paid more across the board, uh, but I don't think it's the only thing that will help us get out of this problem. Got it. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and if you're just joining us, it's our special 2022 Year in Health Review, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservan. Well, it is that time that we need to start preparing for 2023 officially, and I thought that we leave our last question to each of you uh, to help us predict next year in health for 2023. So I'm going to go around and I'm going to ask you this. What healthcare story do you most expect to see in 2023? So I'm going to start uh, over in our West Coast group and uh, Dr. Reddy, uh, what healthcare story do you expect us to see in 2023? Yeah, well, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one. We have lots of healthcare stories bubbling up. But listen, I, I think that our conversation around reproductive rights um, has not ended. I think we will continue to talk about it. And I think we will continue to be figuring out as a nation where we stand. And, you know, um, there are all kinds of upstream, downstream effects of, of the, the, the policies that have been created on a state-by-state -state level. I mean, there's certain medications that are not even meant to, um, to, to have anything to do with reproduction that are not being filled um, by pharmacists in certain states because there's fear, um, uh, fear of you know um, being on the wrong side of a particularly restrictive abortion law in that state. I think we're just going to hear more and more about some of these sort of again unintended uh, at times consequences, and and we're still going to be figuring out as a country where we stand on the reproductive rights piece. And I think what we've seen even in this last year. Um, this is a huge issue. This is a huge issue in the United States. It's a huge issue for young folks, a huge issue for women. Um, and and I, it's not one that, that has ended. We're, we're still going to be figuring this out as a nation on a state-by-state -state level and, and kind of where we stand. And again, really t having to take a deep look at who is being impacted the most. Dr. Draskowski, what do you expect to see in 2023 with regards to healthcare stories uh, from your vantage point? Well, as you know, neurologists are the nerds of the medical profession, and I'm going to go down the road of something totally different. Okay. Um, I, I know that I have 
envisioned over the years for my colleagues to come up with uh, brain-computer interfaces. As you know, neurologists have deal with vision loss, paralysis, speech trouble, swallowing difficulties from those diseases that we mentioned earlier. Um, it's there's there's a great push and a great emphasis which we haven't heard too much about unless you're kind of into the tech end of it, where this this brain body interface, if you will, I think it's going to make a big splash because there's there's a there's a now private and public funding that's going into this that will change people's lives directly. And I think it's going to be, uh, like I said, being a kind of a nerdy thing, it's, it's kind of a niche thing, but when you, when you're, you or your family really need it, it's going to be, it's going to be groundbreaking when it does occur. And, and by the end of the year, I'm hoping next year that people have gotten back to the, you know, they've gotten back to their doctors and had preventative medicine for colonoscopies, mammograms, prostate exams, et cetera, you know, because I think that's been neglected. And I think those are the two things. I, I, I took my editorial license and did a couple of things in that regard. So no, those, I, th- that's what I think. I love it. But let, but let me at least add this as, as a fellow neurologist. Let's show some love uh, to our, our brain doctors out there. Uh, <laughs> Roger that. Okay. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Dr. Patel, um, what healthcare stories do you most expect to see in 2023? Yeah, I touched on a little bit and I'll reemphasize it. It's this evolution of the non-traditional healthcare delivery, whether you're talking about telehealth, retail healthcare, or the expansion of that non-physician practitioner scope. And, and I think that, you know, what we're really looking at is, is what the free market does. If people can do it smarter and more efficiently without increasing burden, uh, why not ask others for their ideas for how we can revolutionize healthcare. Uh, there's no reason why we need to be uh, confined uh, within our box. Uh, I think that you've got these big retailers who think they can do it efficiently, provide high quality care, but also make a profit. I mean, that's what this, that's what capitalism is built on. Uh, I think it also then puts pressure on the traditional uh, purveyors of healthcare to also um, uh, be creative in what they're doing. Uh, and so I think that's really what I'm, I'm most excited to see is what will healthcare look like in 2023 going forward? Because we know that there's great opportunity for us to do better. I love the optimism uh, uh, in that response. Dr. Cowart, what about you? What healthcare stories do you expect to see in 2023? So I also would like to go in a totally different direction. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to talk about opioids for a second. Okay. Um, so we know that even as COVID was, uh, the COVID pandemic was at its worst, Uh, We were still seeing a rising number of opioid deaths across the country, unfortunately, including here in Florida. And we've seen a lot of news that I think is not helpful. Uh, We see, quote unquote, rainbow fentanyl, or we see overblown stories of someone who is essentially having a panic attack after an exposure to inhaled powder fentanyl, who later tests negative for fentanyl, has none of the signs of overdose of fentanyl. We've become very hysterical about the word fentanyl. And we're not really talking about what, how it is that it's killing people. It's killing people who are addicted to opioid drugs. And generally, these folks are injecting fentanyl in order to feed that addiction. Now, I want to take it in the positive and hopeful direction. We have medicines that can treat people with opioid use disorder and can save their life. It can prevent them from overdosing. It can prevent them from getting infective endocarditis and other infectious etiologies and problems related to this use. These are medicines like buprenorphine and methadone. There were some uh, public health emergency um, waivers and flexibilities that were put into place through COVID that helped people get access to their methadone at the clinic, for example. We are working where I where I work to try to get more providers their X waiver to provide buprenorphine to patients who need it. But getting people over that hump of getting that waiver to get the prescriptions has been tough. So a bill has passed Congress, has not yet passed the Senate, and this is called the MAT Act, the bipartisan bill that would release what's called the X waiver. And basically anyone with a DEA license could provide buprenorphine prescriptions. And this would make it much easier for patients to access buprenorphine. I don't know in the last, you know, couple weeks of the lame duck, lame duck Senate if this is going to pass. Perhaps I'll be really, really hopeful. I've been really good, Santa. Um, but if it doesn't pass this year, I'm hopeful since it's passed one House of Congress that it could actually pass. I think this would be game changing. And I really want to see the news focus on the hope 
for people with opioid use disorder. We have medicines that can treat you. You can be a healthy, productive person in your family. And we have these things available. So I, that's what I'm really hoping for for Christmas. I wrote my letter to Santa. Please pass the MAT Act and uh, XDX waiver. Get buprenorphine into more people's hands. I love it. And we're going to let that be our last word on this year for 2022. Uh, I want to thank you in studio to Dr. Jen Cowart, to Dr. Sharag Patel, to our two guests over on the West Coast, to Dr. Reddy and Dr. Joseph Draskowski, uh, both of us who helped to frame this year and put it in perspective. Uh, the most important thing I have to say to all four of you is happy, happy new year, happy 2023. I hope I'm the first to say that to you guys. Uh, and uh, we look forward to having you guys join us in 2023 as well. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank, Thank you. you. Honor. Happy new year. Happy new year. Happy new year, you guys. And We've been talking to uh, an incredible group of experts uh, that cover all facets in medicine. We've been talking to uh, Dr. Swapna Reddy, a professor of health policy and health inequities at Arizona State University College of Health Solutions in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. To Dr. Joseph Draskowski, a professor of neurology and a practicing neurologist who we mentioned nerdy neurologist, now that I have to put that in there, uh, at, at Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona, to Dr. Jennifer Cowart. She is a hospital internal medicine physician here in Jacksonville, Florida. And last but not least, Dr. Sharag Patel, the assistant chief medical officer for UF Health here in Jacksonville. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella Da Silva and Josh Torres are our directors. Next week's program is our preview of critical healthcare issues in 2023. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening. Happy 2023, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation and by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.